Okay, today we are beginning a five-part series uh, entitled Focusing on the Family. Uh, no one ever accused me of being original. So uh, we are talking about the, the marital relationship and being the right husband and the right wife today. And uh, the next two Lord's Days, we'll look at nurturing sons in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and then the last two Sundays of this month, we'll look at nurturing daughters in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Uh, now, some of you might say, well, I don't have any children, so I don't need to listen to those next four sermons, but you know, we all stand up when a child is baptized in the life of this church, saying that we're going to help those parents and so with the responsibilities that they have, covenantal responsibilities. So uh, I think you'll uh, hopefully benefit from this series. Today we turn to Psalm 127. And I'll say at the outset that I normally uh, preach expositional sermons, but this uh, series is more topical in nature. So just keep that in mind. Psalm 127, I'll read these words for us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I once read a true story about a middle schooler who was having trouble uh, with his homework, it was harder than any homework he'd ever seen. He was sitting at the kitchen table one night, and his mother was across the room at the kitchen sink. And in his frustration, he cursed under his breath. But his mother heard him from across the room, and she came over and sat down at the table and looked him in the eye and said, Bobby, I know that homework is hard now that you're in middle school. And I know that you're frustrated, but using foul language does not help. And we do not talk like that in our family. And then his apron-wearing mother proceeded to list off in a row 15 four-letter words. All the major movers of foul language and he just stood sat there with his mouth open he couldn't believe what was coming out of his mother's mouth and then she reiterated we know these words but we do not use such words in our family if you think about the sermon on the mount that we can find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus doing much the same. For He says to His followers, You have heard it said, but I 
say to you. It's like Jesus is saying, we know these practices out here that other people do, but we are not going to do that in the Christian family. Instead, we are going to grow up like our Father who's in heaven. And in that sermon, Jesus proceeds to cover murder, anger, adultery, divorce, how we speak, revenge, and so forth as he continues to give us those timeless words that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting that part of his teaching there covers the marital relationship where he's speaking of adultery and divorce. Two things that wreak havoc on marriages in our day and time and always have because instead of building or strengthening the marital relationship, those two things are tearing down what our society is built upon, that is the family, a man and a woman coming together, becoming one flesh, being fruitful and multiplying. Adultery and divorce are trying to tear down ultimately what God is building or seeks to build. We read about that in our text just a moment ago. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And this is what I want us to talk about today as we begin this five-part series. And we might begin by asking a simple yet significant question. How does the Lord build your house, referring to the family as the second part of this psalm does, and how does he build mine? We need to ask that question because if he's not building it, Solomon tells us in this psalm that all of our time is wasted. It serves no purpose. In his book, One Home at a Time, Dennis Rainey would say that we can help this process by knowing applying, experiencing, embracing, and proclaiming God's truth about marriage and the family. And what is God's truth when it comes to husbands and wives? What picture does God give us of the right kind of husband and the right kind of wife? Now, I put it that way because, as Charlie Shedd once said in his book, Letters to Karen, marriage is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. Paul helps with this picture of the right kind of husband in Ephesians 5, where we find these words, The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he goes on to say there, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, we have to ask ourselves, how did Christ love the church? Well, ultimately, he went to the, to the cross for the church. He died for the church. That's what this sacrament portrays so well. But Paul gives us a good picture of the overall attitude of Jesus in Philippians 2 when he says Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. So we begin to see the, the biblical pieces come together. 
Jesus is head of the church, meaning that he leads the church, but at the same time, he takes on the form of a servant. So Paul is telling those of us that are husbands that we are servant leaders. This is the picture of Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels, and I might add, from his own teaching. For in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the leader of his church, and yet he came to serve. That's why he calls us as his followers, all of us, to be servants. In several places in the Gospels, he says something like we find in Matthew 20, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Donald Messer wrote a book geared to clergy entitled Images of Christian Ministry. And in one of his chapters in that book, he comments that the dimensions of the servant church underscore the imperative that the servant church has no room for a pampered priesthood. The towel and the basin, not pomp and power, are the symbols of redemptive ministry. And husbands, the same is true for you and me. The marital relationship is all about the towel and the basin. This willingness to stoop and serve as John 13 pictures Jesus washing His disciples' feet, including the disciple who would betray Him in just a few more moments. It's not about power at all. It's about service. In fact, this is so true that Paul alludes at the end of Ephesians 5 that when husbands and wives are living biblically within the marital relationship, that their relationship actually portrays to the world around them the kind of relationship that Jesus has with His church. That's how we should be loving one another and serving one another and submitting to one another, and in unity with one another as husbands and wives. From a reading of the Gospels, we can see that in His life of service, Jesus consistently set aside His own desires and needs in order to serve others. In much the same way, we husbands should let go of whatever agendas we have in order to serve our wives and meet their needs. You see, this is a uh, whole new kind of leader that both Jesus and Paul describe. What wife would not want to be loved and supported in that way? And if the Bible portrays the husband as a servant leader, what role does the wife play? I've seen some people, because of what Scripture teaches, label the wife as a helper slash lover. In Genesis 2, when we hear about Adam 
naming all of the animals, we can also read there that for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. And this is when we're told that God created Eve. As the 18th century Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it, a woman was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. Every wife needs to understand how much her husband needs her, even if he won't admit it. Our society may consider this title, Helper, to be demeaning, but ladies, I would remind you that God does not. I mean, think about how God refers to Himself by that same term, Helper, in His Holy Word. Think about Hebrews 13, who quotes Psalm 118 in his 13th chapter there when he writes, We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That's one of those verses we see in both Testaments. It's in Psalm 118. It's in Hebrews 13. It's like, you know, I've told you before, whenever we see things over and over again in Scripture, it's like God ringing a bell saying, ding, 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 this is important. Make sure that you see it. And think of Paul's words in Romans 8 where we're told that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us as Christian people. And this is one of the pictures of the role the wife plays. One who comes alongside to help. She was taken from man's side. That's part of who she is, biblically speaking. The wife also loves, loves enough to be willing to be in submission to the husband. Now husbands, remember that both husband and wife are to submit themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. When Paul begins to talk to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, he begins it with that overarching statement, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul was showing the kind of radical freedom and new life that women had in Christ. So much so that husbands and wives were to be in mutual submission, which ladies was a huge step up for women who were considered to be property in that day and time. But with that said, in Ephesians 5, the husband is the spiritual leader of the home, just as Jesus is the leader of the church. And this is why the wife is expected to ultimately yield to him when they don't agree on the same course of action. When I'm giving premarital counseling to young couples, I always tell the grooms-to-be in those situations that you have the harder road to hoe because you are the spiritual leader of the home. And if you insist on a decision, it had better be the right one because God will hold you accountable. 
But with that said, keep in mind that this notion of headship does not focus on authority so much, but rather is more of an idea of responsibility for and care. Just as Jesus redefined greatness as being a servant, so does Paul in some ways, redefine headship as having the responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture. While the husband is referred to more than the wife in Ephesians 5, it's for the benefit of the wife and the good of the family as a whole that he is the head, theoretically. And speaking of the good of the family as a whole, what vision do you have for your family as husbands and wives. In other words, why is God building your house if indeed He is? what's, What's the end goal? Abraham Lincoln once said, a child is a person who is going to carry on what you have started. He will assume control of your cities, states, and nations Dottie, you've seen that happen. Your child assumed control of a city. He's going to move in and take over your churches, schools, universities, and corporations. The fate of humanity is in His hands. Otto Brunfels was a German theologian who was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and he had this to say. What more Christian thing could happen than that children be raised well and taught self-discipline, usable skills, and a sense of honor? What richer and better inheritance could any father give his children? Now, in our text before us, we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord, a reward. And part of the reason that's true is because we are fulfilling God's mandate that He gave us that we see in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. But there's more to parenting than simply being fruitful. As parents, we need to have a biblical vision for what God intends through the gift He's given unto us, or gifts as the case may be. What does God want to accomplish through the lives of people He's entrusted to our care? In Deuteronomy 6, God tells us why He wants us to be fruitful. For we see that we are to do all that we can to nurture children of the faith who will pass on a godly legacy by connecting one generation to the next. You see, if we are visionaries as parents, then we'll establish the right priorities for our children. And this is so important because society out there will tell you what the right priorities are. Society, some parts of it, will say education is the be-all and end-all for nurturing a child. Others will say it's outside activities, it's sports and the like. There are all kinds of ideas out there in our society of what is most important. But the hearts of our children are what we are after as much as is humanly possible. Understanding that only God can change a heart. 
we must strive to make a difference in our families' lives, and I believe we do that by living an authentic faith, not just talking the talk, but walking the talk. And our children will then make a difference through God's power, and that means that you and I as parents will have the right kind of legacy. You know, when Aristotle Onassis died, Time magazine declared he left little legacy, no monuments, no great acts of achievement other than a succession of business deals. Commenting on those words, columnist James P. Shannon wrote, to leave no estate is not shameful. To leave no legacy is tragic. For husbands and wives who live as Scripture teaches, for those who envision what God has in mind, for those entrusted to their care, this tragedy of no legacy will never take place. But just how do you nurture your sons and daughters in the fear and admonition of the Lord? That's what we'll talk about during the next four weeks together. And children and young people who are here today, we're not just John and I going to be talking to your parents, we're going to be talking to you too through this. And we're going to be talking to grandparents and we're going to be talking to aunts and uncles and all kinds of people. So may God use our words for His honor and glory. Amen. Amen.